What's up, Team Female? Welcome to Female Political Strategy. Female first, female forward, politically non-binary. I'm Ro. Hi, Lilith. And I'm Elle. So this episode, we are finally tackling the concept of asymmetric warfare and how that relates to, in my view, gender relations between men and women. And this is going to be the third article in my series on feminist realism. This episode on asymmetric warfare, it's going to be a two-parter. This is part one. We'll talk about the theory of asymmetric warfare and the two types of strong actor strategies. And part two, we'll talk about the weak actor strategies and what that means for women. So let's dive right in. So before you jump right in, Lilith, I can't tell you how like a flutter my heart is for you to just like riff on this right now. It's an honor. <laughs> yeah, I, I would. I do want to credit L. Actually, I was asking L. Like, hey, do you have any resources on asymmetric warfare? She sent me this article. I read this article, and at first of all, I remember reading it in like poli sci three hundred level course on like national security, and it not really paying attention at the time. Like, I just kind of skimmed it because I was like on the bus, like on the way to class. Didn't remember it. And then Elle sends it to me. And I was like, hey, wait, I remember this article. And I took it more seriously this time. So were you poli sci? I don't know if you want to dox yourself or anything. Were you a poli sci major? I was a poli sci minor, um, but I took English lit as a major. So I love it. Okay. That's all. Poli sci queens. (laughs) Look at us. We made it kind of to a podcast. So I'm just going to start reading from my article that I've written here. Yeah. So let's dive right in. Asymmetric warfare is a type of war in which belligerents have a significant difference in relative military power. And in my opinion, conflict between men and women is a lot like asymmetric warfare because men are physically larger and stronger than women. They're more likely to use violence and they have more political and institutional power. Whenever I talk about feminist realism with women, especially feminists, especially radical feminists on Twitter, their most common objection to the idea that women can have power over men is that, well, men are larger and stronger than us. They can always use violence against us if they want to, you know, as if male violence is an insurmountable obstacle, which it's not. In my opinion, male violence is not an insurmountable obstacle. And in fact, it's becoming increasingly a liability for men because one, we now live in a world that no longer puts a premium on men's physical strength advantage. And two, the use of violence has become so costly that it's no longer beneficial to them in the long run. And also since we've been peeing in the water supply, (laughs) remember? (laughs) Yeah, we've been using a biological warfare on them. So Y chromosome is becoming more and more obsolete every year. Are peeing our birth control hormones? <laughs> I still have a yeah. I have a small little Twitter movement right now of like three followers. Like say like say its name. The Y chromosome matters, but that's neither here nor now. The Y chromosome matters, but yeah. The thing is, though, warfare has changed a lot in recent decades or centuries. War nowadays is increasingly being fought within the minds of people, not on the battlefield. And since women are more mentally agile than men. Again, that's another L-ism, so I just want to credit you. Um, <laughs> that women are more men- mentally agile than men. Um, we, we women, we are uniquely positioned to win the war against male violence. I'm basing this off of the essay, How the Weak Win Wars, A Theory of Asymmetric Conflict by Ivan Aragontoff. So this article seeks to understand why is it that weak actors are increasingly winning wars against stronger opponents. And in my view, I think every woman needs to read this full essay, but I'm just going to summarize it. 
here for this episode. He begins his essay with the tale of how Muhammad Ali won against George Foreman, despite being the less powerful fighter. Here's the story of how Muhammad Ali won against George Foreman. No one had given Muhammad Ali a chance against George Foreman in the World Heavyweight Championship fight of October 30th, 1974. Foreman, none of whose opponents had lasted more than three rounds in the ring, was the strongest, hardest-hitting boxer of his generation. Ali, though not as powerful as Foreman, had a slightly faster punch and was lighter on his feet. Float like a butterfly sting like a bee. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, in the weeks leading up to the fight, however, Foreman had practiced against nimble sparring partners. He was ready. But when the bell rang just after 4 a.m. in Kinshasa... No clue. Uh, Something completely unexpected happened. And round two, instead of moving into the ring to meet Foreman, Ali appeared to cower against the ropes. Foreman, now confident of victory, pounded him again and again while Ali whispered hoarse taunts. George, you're not hitting. George, you disappoint me. Let me see if I can do my Muhammad Ali voice. Uh, (laughs) uh, Foreman lost his temper and his punches became a furious blur. To spectators, unaware that the elastic ring ropes were absorbing much of the force of Foreman's blows, it looked as if Ali would surely fall. By the fifth round, however, Foreman was worn out. And in round eight, as stunned commentators and a delirious crowd looked on, Muhammad Ali knocked George Foreman to the canvas, and the fight was over. The outcome of that now famous rumble in the jungle was completely unexpected. The two fighters were equally motivated to win. Both had boasted a victory and both had enormous egos. Yet in the end, a fight that should have been over in three rounds went eight and Foreman's prodigious punches proved useless against Ali's rope-a-dope strategy. This fight illustrates an important yet relatively unexplored feature of interstate conflict, how a weak actor strategy can make a strong actor's power irrelevant, emphasis mine, if power implies victory in war, then weak actors should almost never win against stronger opponents, especially when the gap in relative power is very large. Yet history suggests otherwise. Weak actors sometimes do win. The question is how. Yeah, okay, yeah. I. Uh, this makes sense. The rope-a-dope strategy is, is pretty infamous. In my article, I highlight how a weak actor's strategy can make a strong actor's power irrelevant. I think that is such an important concept for us as women to understand. And I think that's why, you know, us at Female Dating Strategy, why we're called Female Dating Strategy and not Female Dating Tips or Female Dating Ideas or whatever, because the strategy is the key idea here. Female Dating Niceties. Yeah. Female Dating Niceties. And convenient tropes and feel-good beliefs. Exactly. We're all about strategy here, okay? And that is how women will win the war against male violence. Okay, so I included the full text of the opening of this article because I want women to take note of the precise strategies that Muhammad Ali used against George Foreman. So the use of terrain, elastic ropes, using verbal taunts to provoke the opponent's temper, and leveraging one's own endurance to prevail against the greater strength of your opponent are all strategies that I'm going to be discussing later in this article slash podcast episode. Can I interject that uh, the rope-a-dope strategy is not not at all unlike how female dating strategy itself blew up? Because, I mean, essentially they're very easy to provoke. Right? Men are very easy to provoke. (laughs) One of the strategies I'll get into is provoke him into barbarism and then leverage public opinion against him. Um, But that's, again, that's for part two. So, uh, um, or part two of this episode. I mean, not even just like the barbarism, but just the fact that they bring more attention to us than we would otherwise have because they react poorly to women asserting very small boundaries. 
right? They just explode, in which case, you know, other people take notice. I, in fact, this is a strategy I've sub, sort of intuitively used most of my life. I've always known that men have a really short temper. And the, the thing is, is men will use their temper to intimidate you, to try to scare you, to make you more quiet. And I just would always just do the opposite because I learned that you could make them look really, really bad if they blew up in front of other people, right? I did that in my I did that to my uncle actually. I talked about that in the Thanksgiving episode for FDS. But anyways. Um yeah, so before I go further though, I just want to point out that Ergentoft is writing this essay from, you know, the US imperialist perspective, and the strategies he suggests are meant to benefit the interests of the United States. But for the purposes of this article, I'm writing from the opposite perspective. I'm almost, you know, writing from the perspective of like an insurgent seeking to repel a much larger and stronger colonizer. And as I wrote in the introduction to feminist realism, Man is like a nation that uses his superior military power to invade and colonize women, the smaller and weaker state. So, <clears throat> continuing on, after the Muhammad Ali allegory, Ergentoft goes on to explore the conditions in which weak actors can win against strong actors. He cites Andrew Mack's essay, Why Big Nations Lose Small Wars, The Politics of Asymmetric Conflict, in which Mack argues that an actor's relative resolve or interest is the best explanation for the success or failure of an asymmetric conflict. He argues that power asymmetry explains interest asymmetry. For example, a smaller nation being attacked by a larger nation, they are literally at threat of, um, sorry, a smaller nation being attacked by a larger nation has a much greater interest in winning because getting invaded is an existential threat to them, whereas a smaller nation does not pose an existential threat to a larger nation, so the larger nation is less incentivized to win because his survival is not at stake. But ultimately, Ergentoft rejects Mack's theory for several reasons, he explains it thoroughly in his essay, and he advances his own hypothesis that it is strategic interaction, I repeat, strategic interaction, not interest asymmetry, that predicts the outcome of the asymmetric conflicts. That's really interesting because um, I know there's been a lot of uh, talk of the former in the context of Ukraine versus Russia, as well as Hong Kong versus China of them both fighting to maintain their democracies and saying, well, they have a vested interest of, uh, of defending their democracies. So there's some kind of like maybe wishful thinking that they can all successfully ward off an invasion or take over through strength of will. I mean, strength of will is important, but it's not the deciding factor, right? Like it, it is important to be motivated, but then, and I mean, in the essay, Ergentoff talks about how even larger nations, you know, even if it's not an existential threat for them, it can still be, you know, the reasons of the conflict, they can still be very motivated to win that war. For example, the United States, even if it's like a tiny war in another country that has barely any influence on them, the United States might be really, really motivated to win that war because if they lose, it would make them look bad. They'd lose the whole like world's police status kind of thing. And so it, they would, it would be a threat to their sort of hegemonic um, power, right? So yeah being able to save face. Same thing with China, right? Like they, they have a vested interest in taking over Hong Kong and various other, um, you know, and various other smaller states, um, for a variety of reasons, but that's, that's another conversation for another time. Um, 
back to my essay. Um, so basically, yeah, it's strategic interaction, not interest asymmetry that predicts the outcome of asymmetric conflicts. And I personally agree with Ergentoff's rejection of Max's argument because even when it's applied to sex-based conflict, Max's argument doesn't make any sense. Men pose an existential threat to women, but not the reverse. So, for example, men, you know, routinely rape, disfigure, murder women. And yet most women seem to have weirdly very little resolve in fighting back against male violence, even among feminists who you think would be the most motivated to fight. At most, you'll maybe have like the separatists who want to separate from men. But again, they're not most women are not actively interested in like fighting back against male violence. They're just sort of trying to avoid it sort of more passively. You mean more like not direct attacks, more legal structure because they do fight back but it's more in the legal structure and less so physical attacks i guess but like for example if i talk about like oh you know women should like train hard weight lift learn self-defense and stuff they're like well there's no point in doing that because you know he's just gonna beat the shit out of you anyway so you know you may as well just avoid men like th- that sort of thing so yeah I, yeah there's the fighting back on the you know in terms of trying to get you know stronger prison sentences and so so on um because I, I think what I would be afraid of is triggering like an arms race cold war. So let's say I just start hitting the gym, start bulking up, and then I'll, I get all my, my homies, like get all my friends to go to the gym. And we all start like squatting and deadlifting. And like, wouldn't, <laughs> like, couldn't, wouldn't we like trigger an arms race with men in which they would ultimately win? So, so I'm not saying that's not a consideration. I mean, a I'm just the, saying. <laughs> first of all, a lot of the shitty men who are suck, like incels, they're fucking basement dwellers, and I could totally take them in a fight. So <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to like imagine a swole nation. I'm not I'm not even saying that'd be a, a wrong thing to do given the fact that so many Americans are unhealthy and we need to work on both our food supply and also our public health um, and fitness. So I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I'm just I'm just thinking of like, man, what if we all maximize our swole and then men just get swoller? <laughs> I mean, would that be a bad thing? Okay, like a lot of men are fucking skinny fat and like, I I would love to motivate men to stop being fat sacks of shit, honestly. True. (laughs) It's like, oh, look out, the feminists are getting buff. Like, watch out. Better start in the gym. (laughs) Okay. Okay, okay. Anyways, back to the article. Um, Yeah. In contrast, women do not pose an existential threat to men, and yet men's rights activists are weirdly extremely dedicated to winning the gender war. If women lose the gender war, we die, or we're sexually enslaved. If men lose the gender war, it means they'd have to do more chores or masturbate instead of having sex because they wouldn't have access to a mommy bang maid. I I saw some really hilarious commentary about how incels and MRAs are actually bizarro world gender studies professors. Wait, what? How? I don't understand. Wait, what? Because basically like the a level in which they uh, study women and then like categorize, archetype, explain power dynamics, do s- social surveys and like statistical analysis is basically bizarro world gender studies. Like it's just male. It's like opposite world gender studies. Yeah. Opposite world gender studies, like where they're just like doing like, uh, but, you know, and obviously they're informal informal judges because it comes with a lot of heavy bias but the fact that they like dedicate the amount of energy like they could all be professors for like the tomes of and volumes of information <laughs> right am our professor of men's rights activism professor of anti-feminism and that, i mean and that's what makes them somewhat dangerous is like because they they may not find the institutional power but clearly they figured out how to leverage um like groundswell support to change legal structures political structures etc so 
they are in some respects. So they're super duper duper focused on women because they understand that being able to observe women, categorize women and create counter strategies is a, is a tantamount or important for their sustainability and for them to uh, maintain the upper hand and maintain They know power. it's going to make their life harder. And so, side note, but, uh, and this isn't part of the article, but, you know, people often say, like, oh, FDS, it's like the female red pill. Okay, first of all, the fucking red pill has been around, like, what, like, 10 years? Pickup artists have been around for decades before that, okay? So, men have been doing this shit for a lot longer than women have, and so as soon as women start coming up with counter-strategies, it's like, no, 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 stop that! Stop! You know, you're just the same as the red pill, you can't do that, you're just as bad as them. It's like, no, 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 we're here to clean up the fucking mess that they made okay we're here to fix the problems that they've created okay we're not both i think because we're just not nice about it whereas like because men institutionally capture a lot of major a lot of major institutions so like we've talked about media we've talked about talked about academia we've talked about uh major corporations they do push their interests forward but they just couch it in flowering language you don't really realize you're being exploited or if men are being rude they're just not judged the same way that women are judged exactly that too so i think part of it too is because we we don't sugarcoat the thing yeah we're getting off track but anyways back back to the article so um just to wrap up this paragraph if interest asymmetry was the best predictor of victory or loss then you'd think that women would have won this war long ago but we haven't yet yet Okay, so Ergentoft points out that weak actor victory has become increasingly common in recent years. I'll have a graph. Um, You can take a look at the graph. But basically, it shows how, you know, 200 years ago, if you were the stronger actor, you'd pretty much always win. And then in recent years, it's actually become closer to like 50-50. So that means that over time, there's been more weak actor victories, which is good news for women, because not only does it mean that victory for women is possible, it actually means that we are more likely to win as time goes on. In his essay, Ergentoft seeks to understand the reason why weak actor victories have increased over time. So if it was true that power implies victory in war, as has been assumed since Thucydides, or interest asymmetry implies victory in war, as was argued by Andrew Mack, then one would think that the frequency of weak actor victory would remain relatively constant over time, but it hasn't. So why is that? So to explain this trend of growing weak actor victory, Ergentoft outlines two types of military strategies, direct and indirect, and I'm just going to go ahead and summarize that. So the strong actor, or there's the attack strategies, also known as the strong actor strategies. There's one, direct attack, two, barbarism and barbarism is sort of indirect. There's defense or weak actor strategies, and that's one, direct defense, or two, guerrilla warfare strategy, and guerrilla warfare strategy is also indirect. And so we're going to go over direct attack and um, barbarism in this episode. The purpose of a direct attack is to gain control of the opponent's assets, a city, bridge, power plant, etc., by using one's military to capture or eliminate the armed forces of the opponent. And the goal is to destroy the opponent's military and destroy their ability to defend themselves. So other than direct attack, there's barbarism. And the purpose of barbarism is to destroy the opponent's will and their capacity to fight. It involves violating the laws of war to achieve a military or political goal. And This includes prohibited weapons such as chemical or biological weapons, but most typically the use of barbarism is attacking civilians. So things like rape, bombing civilians, torture, concentration camps, and so on. The goal is to destroy their morale 
and to eliminate the capacity for the population to mount a resistance movement. There's also been examples of being barbaric towards themselves. Like if if you watch any um, World War II movies or documentaries, when the United States started to invade, I think it was Okinawa, a lot of them were told by the Japanese officials that the Americans would rape them. And so then there was like mass suicides and then a lot of their fighter pilots, uh, they were training them to go on kamikaze missions, which is like, you know, the intent that they were going to just uh, fly their planes into ships and then not make it out alive. And it was a dual strategy by the Japanese military to intimidate the Americans from advancing because like you just see these like mass die-offs like it was just kind of tragic. I would say that's more not so much barbarism against themselves. I'd say that's more of like a manipulation strategy to get their soldiers to be willing to sacrifice themselves. Um, I would say it, it's it's more barbarism against the U.S. though because the U.S. sees that and Amer- you know Americans they're de- democratic. Um, I guess, I don't know, maybe there was an attempt to, like, turn public opinion within the states, like, against the war. It was the men, as far as, like, them fighting, but when it came to, like, they were encouraging women and children to commit suicide. And so that basically gave a lot That's of... That's, like, a Japan-specific thing, though. Yeah. Like, the whole, like, you know, death before dishonor thing. Like, yeah. you know, they'd, they'd rather kill themselves than... Um, but that's, like, kind of a separate... That's a totally separate thing. But anyways, um, but, but I, I want to highlight that the important thing to remember about barbarism is that it's not about attacking it's not about attacking the the opponent's military it's about destroying the will of the people to fight so an example would be like during um the vietnam war how they'd use like napalm for example to level all the forests so that the viet cong couldn't you know use the the jungle as like a um guerrilla warfare thing to interrupt supply lines and so on. Um, Another example would be like um, the Chechens, you know, resisting the Russians, for example, they would, you know, attack the Russians and then retreat into the forest. And so then the Russians cut down the whole forest so that they couldn't, um, you know, they couldn't fight, they couldn't mount a resistance movement from within the forest. Another example would be during the uh, Boer War, the British used concentration camps against um, their opponents in South Africa. The purpose of the concentration camps is to make it so that they can't, or they can't mount a insurgency, like against the British. And not just that, it's not just about eliminating their capacity to fight. It's also about eliminating their will to fight. Think another example would be like, you know, scorched earth policy or, you know, to just terrify the population in general into being too afraid to resist because they know the consequences will be extremely painful. Um, So yeah. How does this relate to gender relations? Well, in my opinion, male violence against women actually serves two functions. One, as a direct attack, it involves the use of physical force to gain control of the woman's sexual organs, for example, in the case of rape, or to compel the woman to provide him with sexual, reproductive, emotional, physical caretaking, and domestic labor that he believes himself to be entitled to, as in the case of intimate partner violence. And two, as a form of barbarism, the threat of male violence destroys the woman's or women's will to fight. And in my opinion, the latter is way more dangerous. While it is disgusting and horrific when men rape or beat women on an individual level, in my opinion, on a mass scale, the fear of male violence has a much, much more insidious effect of causing women to surrender to men without the man even having to lift his finger. 
The result is a female population that's always looking over her shoulder, shrinking herself, secluding herself, costing her time and money, going along with what men want, holding her tongue when she wants to advocate for herself, limiting her opportunities, and avoiding situations that might otherwise have been rewarding for her if it weren't for the threat and fear of male violence. I love this. And I think it's important to point out that's why there's always like a vicious pushback whenever men try to blame women in any capacity for sexual violence, what we're wearing, where we go, our behavior. Because men men look at it like, well, you shouldn't leave your car door open. Or if you're somewhere drunk late at night, you can't, you have to expect that that's going to happen to you. But the problem is, is like, there's not, there's not like a limit to how much they'll restrict women's movement. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we can see in a lot of cultures where you literally can't leave the house without a male escort. Otherwise anything that happens to you is your fault and uh, sexual violence. You don't get as uh, many legal protections against sexual violence or it doesn't qualify as rape because you left the house with a male escort. And they'll they'll completely restrict women's public life and ability to be in the public before they will feasibly make a safe environment by prosecuting men who do bad things. And it's not always a an issue of them just not being able to. It's them lacking the will because they all on some level benefit they from benefit sexual from it. violence. Exactly. <laughs> so it's one thing if it's like, okay, we're having a hostile takeover of another nation and so you can't go outside because you're, it's literally war. But in peacetime, a lot of men still want to treat it like it's wartime and never like hold accountable even or, or hold men accountable who commit sexual violence against women. So it's always warfare on women. Because even during peacetime, it's, there's still a war on women. Yeah, exactly. Right. If we and don't so, fight back and then force them to create a public space where we can be without harassment and prosecute the people and remove the people from the population who perpetuate violence. Well, the, th- the thing is, is even the supposedly good guys, you know, the nonviolent men, you know, as has been pointed out by radical feminists since forever, that even nonviolent men benefit from male violence. And that's why they're not that motivated to make an effort to imprison these sorts of men. Uh, We talked about this in the episode with Shagaya Naruzi about um, Iranian Me Too and how a lot of women, or basically the idea of hijab and the threat of male violence exists on purpose to shrink women. So what happens is, you know, if you go outside without hijab or you don't wear hijab or you're not covered enough and something bad happens to you, it's like, oh, well, that's your fault. You should have done this and this to avoid being sexually assaulted. Um, and then if even if the woman does wear hijab, it's like, I mean, she's still blamed for it anyways, right? Um, but it's the constant threat of male violence and like what happens if you don't wear hijab or even, you know, the fact that you're going to be blamed for it no matter what you do, even if you are wearing hijab, that threat, that fear of male violence makes women not want to go outside as much. It makes them not take on certain opportunities, opportunities that men might want to have for themselves, right? So the threat of male violence is a deliberate strategy on men to intimidate women, to make women shrink ourselves and to surrender to men without men having to make any effort, right? So to me, the real threat of male violence is not the actual male violence. It's the threat of male violence and what that does to women psychologically. Population control. Exactly. It makes women more submissive and easier to control without men having to put in as much effort. And then you have idiots like uh, Jordan Peterson coming up. Women are just naturally more agreeable. And I'm like, is it that we're no, necessarily we're naturally we're more terrified. agreeable? Is that Exactly. Or is it that you create a structure by which... Uh, the consequence there's a looming threat of violence such that we curb ourselves and become more agreeable to exist within it. Yeah, yeah. just to survive, right? Yeah. Like if women were to be our natural selves, our actual I think female 
women are just as capable of aggression as men. I've talked about this many, many times. I'm not saying women are equally as violent as men. I'm saying that women are just as capable of aggression. We still experience anger. We still experience rage. The unfortunate thing under patriarchy is that women tend to direct their aggression towards safe targets, such as other women and sometimes also children, unfortunately. And I'm not, I know people are like, oh, like women are child abusers. That's an MRA talking point. Like, no, as a, I had a mom who was physically and emotionally violent and honestly the the physical violence was bad enough but for me the emotional scars from the emotional abuse lasted much 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 longer for me and I, I I you know looking back you know at the time I was so angry with my mom and looking back I now realize like my mom was also in an abusive relationship with my father right but my mom couldn't fight back against my dad she you know, she, her aggression, she couldn't turn it towards men. So she turned it towards other women and to her own children. So I'm not excusing what she did. It's just an explanation for her behavior. <laughs> it's like the three stooges theory of violence. Uh, so Mo slaps Larry, Larry slaps Curly and then Curly slaps himself. Yeah. Or, like, <laughs> or no, it's like man slaps woman, woman slaps kid, kid slaps dog, like that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, but, like, people, uh, because you have no one to slap, you internalize it was the point. Like, if you're on the lowest part of the totem pole, like, as the child, children tend to, like, automatically internalize a lot of the violence coming from the mother, that the mother's trying to deal with the father, and so it becomes this cycle, right? Yeah. (laughs) The Mo Larry Curly theory of of circular violence. So, (laughs) Mo slaps Larry, Larry slaps Curly, Curly has no one to slap, so he slaps himself. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I, and I do get in trouble with radical feminists for pointing this out because in, again, I, I'm not anti-rad femme. I, I do consider myself mostly rad femme, but I do disagree with certain points or critique certain points. And one of those is this idea, this very like essentialist view that only men are violent or only men experience aggression. And that like violence goes from one direction only from man to women. Women are just like innocent flowers who never do a violence. And in my view, I feel I feel like this is a problem for two reasons. One, because it's untrue. Like, women are capable of aggression. Women are capable of violence. Usually it's directed towards other women or to children. Secondly, I think it's very self-defeating because my goal with feminist realism is for women to break free of that psychological prison and to stop showing aggression towards other women and to children and to start fighting back and showing aggression towards men. Men are men who are violent are the ones who are deserving of our aggression. Okay. And I know it's scary. And I know that there are often very harsh consequences for women who are being aggressive towards men or who, you know, fight back against men. You know, we see it all the time with FDS, you know, we drag the shit out of men. We make fun of men. We are show anger towards men all the time. And we get we get like verbally attacked, you know, on, on the internet, like all of the time. And yet we still keep going. Okay. We don't pull our fucking punches despite all the fucking hate we get. Right. More women need to fight back. You just have to look at how women socialize in various scenarios in nature and the animal kingdom, because you realize that populations can be malleable and that female violence is a constant among female species, especially female mammals, because of the fact that like we are generally ones that care for young. So we have it within us, right? I once saw a chicken, not just mammals, I once saw a chicken kill and eat a snake because the snake was threatening her little chicks. Okay. Exactly. I see female animals in nature being aggressive and beating the fucking shit. Okay. I also saw a video of a horse, like kicking the head of an alligator or crocodile or whatever. Um, 
you know, like female animals in nature can be aggressive to any threat, right? We have to be. It's the idea that human women that humans are the only species in which the females are incapable of violence or incapable of aggression is absurd to me, right? I yeah. see female animals and other species being violent or being aggressive all the fucking time. We need to learn how to harness that power and use that against the people who are harming us so that we stop being harmed, right? And we just stop fucking turning against other women. And a lot of them are pretty ruthless, right? Because it's not even just that they're um, very hostile towards men. And most animals, by the way, are hostile towards uh, unknown males. Even the males of their own species, yeah, too. exactly. So they, some of them, the more, inte- the more intelligent species, like a lot of the females do build like networks, meaning like they, they um, cooperate with each other on an explicit level. And then there's other times where like they're, they're more lone like actors. octopuses throwing shit at the male octopuses harassing them yeah or like even if you stay with like felines for example just between like lionesses that hunt in packs and then like a female tiger right that's more solo but at the same time like they're they all are sort of in the concept that the way they deal with males is with like a healthy level of skepticism and aggression especially yeah. ones that haven't demonstrated the commensurate amount of uh, submissive behaviors and sexual behaviors that the females find pleasing. But here it's like respect or expected. If they haven't earned the pussy, they fight. Okay. Not even, not even the pussy, like just basic attention. Like the females would just ignore the shit out of them. But here there's so much social pressure for women to entertain this constant loop of nonsense with men. Like you have to be nice. You have to pay him attention or you have to give him a chance. Like, no, we don't. You think like uh, like female birds are watching these like men do these little dances and like giving a shit? No, if they don't want to watch anymore, they fly off. But there's like <laughs> this is where I'm saying the socialized pressure of women to go against our instincts and to constantly like continuously like be agreeable is probably not natural. Like it's probably not natural to just be sitting here looking at men that we aren't bored and like trying to pretend we're nice. And but the threat of violence makes women acquiesce, right? Yeah. And this is ultimately what made me sort of like schism almost from radical feminism and invent feminist realism is because I feel like there's a lot of areas. I, I, again, I still love radical feminism, not trying to discredit or dis radical feminism. I think it's a great like starting point. It's a great theoretical framework, but there are certain blind spots, right? And one of them, in my opinion, is this idea that, you know, only men can be violent or only men can be aggressive. Again, because I think it's self-defeating. Like women need to be able to use aggression if we want to actually fight back against male violence in a real way. That isn't just fucking useless, impotent ass separatism, right? And people are like, oh, oh my gosh, why are you so obsessed with separatism? Because I think it's a losing fucking strategy, as I talked about in my last episode, my last article. Anyways, back to the article. Oh yeah, we kind of went all over this already, but I'll read it again. The specter of male violence even benefits men who are not actively violent to women. For example, a woman who goes on a date with a man and eventually finds herself alone with him might feel pressured to have sex with him, even if she doesn't want to, because she fears that he might rape her, even if he's not directly threatened her with rape. A woman in a relationship with an emotionally abusive man might be too terrified to leave because she fears he'll escalate to physical violence, even if he's never been physically like, even if he's never been directly physically violent with her, the demoralizing power of men's barbarism has infected the minds of every woman, including and especially feminists. This is why, this is precisely why I get so frustrated with certain separatists who say things like, we're doomed, we're never getting out of the patriarchy, he could always use violence against you if he wanted to, because this fatalistic attitude is the entire point of male 
barbarism. If we become hopeless as a result of male violence, we are playing directly into their hands. If we obey, cower, shrink, seclude, or otherwise limit ourselves, we are giving violent men exactly what they want. Amen. That's pretty much all I have to say. That's all the that's all for this episode. <laughs> Thanks for listening, Queens. <laughs> So the strategy, I mean, you've, you've gone over it, but maybe give him a summary. So the strategy. So next up, next episode, we're going to talk about direct defense and guerrilla warfare strategy. And then we're going to go into more detail about the different strategies. But so far, we have one, and this is the number one takeaway strategy from asymmetric warfare, is that as women, we must actively fight our own demoralization. We need to let go of this idea that we're doomed, that there's, you know, men can always use violence against you if he wanted to. First of all, like, so what? Like, he could use violence against you, but most of the time they won't. Let's be real. Like, most men are either too cowardly or they themselves don't want to face the legal consequences of using violence. Um, you know, I'm going to go over this in part two, but, you know, nowadays there are consequences to using violence, right? There's the police state, for example. You know, you could get arrested. There's legal consequences. Secondly, there's um, public perception consequences, right? Even literal abusers, like men who literally beat the shit out of women, they don't want to look like abusers. That's why they abuse women behind closed doors. That's why they, you know, they don't want to be seen as abusive people, right? There are social and legal consequences for using violence. The same thing happens with actual literal warfare, right? Like, you know, if you go, you know, Russia, for example, is facing all kinds of consequences or, you know, sanctions and so on for invading Ukraine. You know, we, you can't just, even though, even though nuclear weapons exist, you, you know, you can't just nuke another country because that would fuck us all up, right? There would be enormous consequences for that. The re it's important to realize that violence, even in literal warfare, is not as important as it used to be because, or it's not as, um, it's not something that you can use as easily as back in the olden days, right? Um, I'm going to launch a contrarian argument um, mm -hmm. and highlight some recent violence that's come out of New York City, like really, really horrific violence because of just unfortunately mentally ill males being able to roam the street there, pushing women in front of the train, of the subway train. Uh, there was a woman who was bit on the face by some random guy on her way to like just the corner store. So those women do live under a real threat of physical violence. Now, granted, these are probably still minority, like millions upon millions of people in New York take the train every day. Millions of people go to the corner store. It's a massive city with a, a large pop population. Um, so it's not necessarily that every woman is going to be a victim at any given time, but it is a scary enough uh threat that women there will adjust a lot of their behavior. So it's, I don't know. It's not that I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not saying that male violence isn't a problem or that it's not scary. It absolutely is. That's the reason why they do what they do is because it is scary. And I'm saying that we as women need to make the conscious decision to choose not to be intimidated by it. And I know that's really, really difficult, you know, on, on an individual level, it's really difficult, especially, especially if you're like an imminent you know, it's not, obviously I'm not saying like, if you're about to get punched in the face by a man, you don't just be like, ha I am unafraid kind of thing. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> unafraid. Yeah. if you're literally about to get attacked by a man, then yeah, maybe it's then, yeah, it's completely normal to be afraid. What I'm talking about is more this, the psychological aspect of it, of about it on a societal level. Right. So like you said, New York is a city with millions and millions of people 
and there's been what maybe a few dozen cases of these attacks right think about what what is the impact of those small number of attacks relative to the large population if the entire population starts going oh i have to be careful whenever i go to the corner store oh i have to step you know step a few backs look over my shoulder whenever i'm waiting for the subway right think about the power that a small number of of attacks has on a large population like that like the likelihood of you actually being attacked in that way is extremely extremely low but the fear of that attack is what is more dangerous, in my opinion. That's the the thing that has the real... It ends up being much more powerful, is the reaction to it. So, follow-up question. Do you think there's a difference between random violence and then intimate partner violence? Because I feel like spot-on when you're talking about intimate partner violence, because like it is not that's a situation where women need to think in every way possible assert control, um, unless, again, you're, again, physically cornered. But... Um, Random violence when you don't know the attacker, I feel like that would be a lot scarier in some respects. You just don't know what they're capable of, right? So that's like, are you familiar with the term stochastic terrorism? No. Okay, I mentioned it in my the first essay. Stochastic terrorism is a type of terrorism. It's called. It's also known as lone wolf terrorism. So things like, uh, you know, like incel attacks, like in uh, Ila Vista, what's his face, Elliot Roger, um, you know, mass shootings. Like these are these sort of like. You know, most terrorism happens as part of some kind of political group like, um, you know, obviously like Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or I don't know, where are some other terrorist groups? Uh, IRA, like uh, Irish Resistance Army and so on. Um, These sorts of terrorist groups happen usually as some sort of like political uh, group or cell, whereas stochastic terrorism is different in that it's just a lone individual just like, a guy mentally disturbed male yeah <laughs> usually mentally disturbed male almost always mentally disturbed male although not even necessarily mentally disturbed it's usually always a man though who just goes out does a mass shooting and it's just, he's not part of any terrorist group he's not part of any you know organization anything like that it's just him um, and the purpose of that is, again, to make a population afraid. It's to think, oh, an attack could happen to me at any point. I better be careful. I better, you know, not go out at night. I better, you know, avoid crowded places. I better do this and this and this, like, to avoid a terrorist attack. The purpose of that is the psychological impact on a population. And in that, when you think about the psychological impact of that on a population, and it's very, very difficult to fight on, to fight that on a mass scale, right? You can tell a few individuals like, hey, don't be scared, you know, but on a large scale, scared, you know, don't be so scared, right? (laughs) Whatever, right? But no, my, this is my like call to action to women is first of all, like, realize that most men are not actually going to act on the physical violence because the um, consequences for them are going to be high. Secondly, I mean, we we have to fix the system. We have to actually enforce consequences, like legal consequences, because way too many fucking rapists, murderers, and so on um, don't face consequences. But you know, the funny thing is, is, you know, all these men saying like, oh, a woman could ruin a man's life with a false rape accusation I and that wish. kind of thing, right? They actually, <laughs> men actually seem to think that the legal system imprisons rapists more than they actually do. And that's what I mean about we need to like have this counter strategy against men. We need to make men think like, yeah, it, instead of being... <laughs> 
you know, feminists do this thing where we're like, oh, only 2% of rapists get convicted and so on. Instead of saying that, because again, you're just telling men like, oh, only 2% of rapists get convicted. Great. I can go out and rape and there's only a 2% chance I'm going to face consequences. We actually should be doing the opposite. We should be like, yeah, if you have that, if you, (laughs) if you do fucked up sexually violent stuff to women, even if she consented to it and uh, she accuses you of rape, you had it coming. Like you're going to go to jail. We actually should terrorize men more and make them more afraid of the consequences. Even if the actual consequences are low, we need to think, we need to make them think that the consequences will be worse than what they actually are. I agree with that, especially when it comes to the Me Too movement and how men were saying like, it's very scary to be a man out here nowadays. And I'm like, good, bitch. Like, good. <laughs> it should be more. It's so scary for me to go and hit on my female coworkers. I'm not saying you should be walking around intimidated. I think a lot of men are having to take some level of sexual responsibility and consider both the mental health and sanity and conditions in which they have sex with a woman more so than they've ever had to before. It, and then not, and still not anywhere near the level that women have to do. Right. But even like that little nudge towards them taking a tiny bit of sexual responsibility, they're outraged and explosive about it. Right. Because they're not used because they think, especially the guys that are, um, alleging that women the men that feel like they have enough money or power such that women would be motivated to make up a false rape accusation against them so you're talking about professional athletes or something like that um i claim bullshit on most of that still but like let's just say on the off chance that it would be worth it um to do it if they thought they could get some kind of settlement um these guys still feel like i should be able to do whatever i want to random women and some of them, for better or for worse, have like maybe encountered truly crazy women and also gotten baby trapped by women they barely know because they don't feel like any they have any responsibility for that sexual encounter. So now they're being forced to take a little bit of responsibility and they, they feel like that's completely unfair because they're used to externalizing it to women entirely. So in terms of the false rape accusations, like, again, like the feminist response to the whole false rape accusations is to be like, false rape accusations are actually extremely rare. And I'm, I'm thinking, girl, like, you should not be saying that. Stop telling men that false rape accusations are rare. They are afraid of rape accusations. So we should actually tell them, no, false rape, rape accusations are extremely common and you should be really afraid of that. And maybe you should think about what, you know, I think they're afraid of inflaming the MRAs to create a bunch of systems of laws, because remember, they were trying to talk about how, oh, we should prosecute and jail women for a decade if they make a false rape accusation. And that's like the tightrope people are walking. No, but again, I think the psychological impact on the male population, think, think of the all of the rapey men out there are terrified of a false rape accusation. I mean, they say it's a false rape accusation. It's probably a true rape accusation. Like it's actually just an accusation. Um, but we actually should make the male population more afraid of rape accusations, not less. That's why I think that the whole, like only 2% of rape rapists are convicted or rape false rape accusations are actually extremely rare. You have nothing to worry about kind of thing. Like stop saying that to men. Okay. (laughs) Whether the legal system and so on are actually effective, that's one thing. I think what's more important is making men think that the consequences are going to be there to deter them from acting on those things in the first place, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, so social control. So social control, right? So much in the same way that men use male men use male violence against women as a form of barbarism to make us afraid, look over our shoulder, shrink ourselves, and so on. Women need to do the same thing to men, okay? We need to terrify the male population into thinking that there will be consequences for their shitty, rapey, pedophilic, fucked up behavior. 
here, okay? Because the consequences aren't there yet, but we need to make them think that the consequences are there. That's how we will win. Anyways, that's it for part one. Stay tuned for part two. That'll be there next week. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Check out our Twitter at Female Political and our Facebook page. Check the link below and our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Female Political Strategy. See you next week. Mm-hmm.